This summer, the world must answer one question. Why has no one made a popsicle that gets you high yet? That's right, it's summer, and it's time for you to get your hands on America's new favorite product, Danksicles. 20 milligrams of THC in two great flavors, the latest and greatest innovation from IndiCloud. Is IndiCloud the greatest company to come out of America? Maybe. But what we do know for sure is that IndiCloud is the best way to get dispensary-grade cannabis delivered directly to your door, 100% legally. Yes, they ship legally to all states. No medical card needed. Whether it's vapes as big as your head, flowers you won't find in your mom's garden, or of course, popsicles that get you high as What are you waiting for? Go to indicloud.co slash spring24 and get discreet delivery on top shelf THC products. Head over to indicloud.co slash spring24. That's co, not com, to snag 30% off your first order. Hey everyone, I'm Nikki Young, and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. The story of Marcus Wesson, also known as the Vampire King of Fresno, involves children, rape, incest, and murder. So if any of that information is triggering to you, please hop on off. I'll catch you on the next episode. It's totally fine. Marcus Wesson, who developed a cult within his own family, would go on to inspire the worst mass murder in Fresno, California. Nine people were killed inside the home. The victims were Wesson's own children, and in some case, they were children he had fathered with his own daughters and nieces. This is an insane story with a horrible ending, but there is light at the end of the tunnel, so hang tight. Before we jump into tonight's case, we have a new sponsor, and it's one of my favorites. I'm excited to talk to you about a new dark humor true crime podcast. You know, the best kind of podcast there is. The Damned podcast features a few guys from the United Kingdom having the occasional beer and taking turns to report and educate others on a crime and dark, strange events they have researched. I had a listen over the weekend, and not only is this podcast funny as hell, it's very well researched. Listening to it kind of reminds you of sitting around the table with a few friends, having a few pints, and talking about true crime and creepy stuff. Obviously, because of the content subject matter, the damn podcast isn't for the faint of heart, but if you're here, I'm going to assume you dig this kind of thing, so listen to the damned podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'll also have their link in my show notes. Stay tuned halfway through tonight's show. I'll talk to you a little bit more about the Damned podcast and the awesomeness I got to listen to over the weekend. Now let's jump into it. This story is a doozy. It stretches over quite a length of time and it has a lot of moving pieces and people. So hang on to your hat. I'm going to try to be as concise as I possibly can to give you the full picture while also being respectful to the victims, who are mostly children. Now, I had never heard of this case until recently, and maybe I'm just out of the loop, but it appears to have been mostly missed due to the fact that it happened around the same time as the Lacey Peterson murder. 
I kind of have a feeling that race may have also played into the lackluster media coverage the story received. Because once you hear all of the details of what occurred in this family, you're going to be asking yourself how the hell this didn't receive worldwide coverage. Marcus Wesson was born in Kansas, Missouri to Benjamin and Carrie Wesson. He was the eldest of four children and raised as a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, just a little history on this sector of religion, because religion plays a large role in this case. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, oh my gosh, that's such a mouthful, is a millenniist Protestant Christian denomination that was founded in the 1860s in the U.S., Adventists live modest lives with a very strict code of ethics. They don't smoke or drink alcohol, and they recommend having a vegetarian diet. Meat is permitted, but only following the biblical commandments on clean and unclean food. Missionary work is very important to the church, and all Adventists believe they have a duty to share their beliefs with others. The biggest differences that I could find between the Adventist church and a lot of other Christian religions is related to what happens to you when you die. Adventists do not believe that people go to heaven or hell when they die. They believe that the dead remain unconscious until the return of Christ. Adventists sometimes use the term conditional immortality, which basically means that all human beings are mortals and die at the end of their life. But human beings who give their life to Christ will find that they are eventually resurrected to a new and immortal life. Unfortunately, sinners and those who don't believe will ultimately die for eternity. Adventists also believe that the second coming of Christ will happen soon. Christ's return will be literal, personal, visible, and worldwide. On that day, the righteous dead will be resurrected and taken with him to heaven together with the righteous living. The unrighteous, you know, those sinners and non-believers, they'll just die. And I guess just be dead and nothing else. No resurrection. Marcus claims that he had a really rough childhood, saying that his mother was a religious fanatic. They spent a lot of time praying, and his father was an alcoholic and child abuser who eventually went on to abandon the family when Marcus was only a child. It also sounds like there was sexual abuse taking place on behalf of the father and a lot of physical abuse by the mother who would whip them with an electrical cord. By the early 1960s, the family had moved to San Bernardino, California, where life carried on. Marcus ended up dropping out of high school shortly after the move and joining the Army, where he served from 1966 to 1968 as a medical care provider. At the end of his service, he was given an honorable discharge. It was around this time that Marcus met a woman by the name of Rosemary Solorio, Rosemary was married at the time, but she decided to break it off with her husband and take up with Marcus, who moved into her San Jose, California home with her and her children. Rosemary actually had eight children of her own when she met Marcus. Not to be sexist, but I think a lot of men would probably run away at the thought of suddenly taking on eight children, but Marcus seemed thrilled to bring these children into his life. He claimed that the children needed a shepherd in their lives, and he was ready to be that for them. 
It wasn't long before Rosemary and Marcus had a son of their own in 1971. Shortly after that, Rosemary's eldest daughter, who was struggling with drug addiction, ran away, leaving her seven children behind at the home, bringing the total number of children in the household to 16. It was also around this time that Marcus became mostly disinterested in his wife, Rosemary, and instead took an interest in her eight-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. I guess now would be the time to insert somewhat of a trigger warning here. Marcus began to groom Elizabeth and started to sexually abuse her when she was just 12 years old and eventually convinced both Elizabeth and Rosemary that he had to marry Elizabeth because... It was God's plan. And Rosemary, instead of protecting her daughter, agreed. They both agreed. Well, Rosemary was really the one that agreed because Elizabeth was just 15 years old when she was married off to Marcus. So I don't think she could legally agree without her mother consenting. Because it was all she knew her entire life, pretty much, it felt normal to her. Four months later, she gave birth to her first child with Marcus. The timeline is going to get a little complicated, but spoiler alert, poor Elizabeth would go on to have 10 more children with Marcus before she reached the age of 26. Marcus would go on to molest and have children with the other young girls too. He sexually abused two of his own daughters and three nieces beginning at ages eight. Each of the five girls became pregnant as a result. Marcus didn't really believe in working, and he could not or would not keep a steady job. Most of his income came from welfare. The family drifted from place to place, and some of the living arrangements they had over time were very unique and unusual. At one point, the family lived in a 26-foot boat that was anchored in the Santa Cruz Harbor. He made all of the children hide below deck, never seeing the light of day. He wanted to keep all of his dirty little secrets away from public eyes. So clearly part of him knew that what he was doing was wrong. Eventually, the boat got him into a bit of hot water with the welfare system. He didn't list it as an asset on his welfare application, so he ended up being charged with welfare fraud in 1990 and spent a bit of time in jail. I imagine this was likely a welcome break for the family. Out of necessity, because welfare doesn't really provide for such a large family, Marcus would sometimes scavenge the dumpsters for food, including pulling hamburgers out of a McDonald's dumpster for his family to eat. After he lost the boat and he got out of jail, the family lived in a large army tent in the Santa Cruz Mountains, on land with no running water, nowhere to use the bathroom, nowhere to cook. They were basically living in squalor. They even went on to live in a school bus for a while before finally purchasing an old office building on Hammond Avenue where the largest massacre in Fresno would take place. City authorities moved to evict the family because it was a non-residential building, meaning nobody was supposed to be living in the old decrepit office building, but it never happened soon enough. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so 
I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, Never Frozen Meals that are also dietitian approved. No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day, because that's half the battle, and I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious, with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code napper50 at factormeals.com slash napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The children didn't attend school, as you can imagine. Marcus taught them at home mostly about his interpretation of religion. His beliefs were very strange. He described himself as Jesus Christ, and police officers, he described them as being satanic. He also believed that 
Jesus was a vampire, thus the reason behind the nickname the Vampire King of Fresno. Marcus's obsession with the undead seemed to stem from the fact that he saw similarities between vampires who are undead and Jesus. I mean, I guess in the Bible it does say Jesus rose from the dead. This idealization led him to collect coffins. He found a bunch of coffins at an antique store that he bought, and he even gave some of his children vampire names, including one child named Jiva, which is a combination of the words Jesus and vampire. And no, I'm not joking. Each day, Marcus would subject the family to hours-long Bible studies that were, in my personal opinion, just complete nonsense. He told the children that he was God, and he had them refer to him as Master or Lord. Yeah, I'm vomiting in my mouth too. He taught the children to be prepared for Armageddon because it was coming soon, and he said that the girls were destined to become his future wives. All of the children that he had, all of the females, he groomed them basically from the time they were born, telling them that they were going to be growing up to be his wife. The girls were not allowed to talk to their male siblings or even their mother, but because he kept the family so removed from the real world, they didn't know any better and they believed every word this man said. Marcus was also known to use brutal force against the children to keep them in line. He would beat the women and children with electrical cords, baseball bats, and hit them with his fists for crossing him in any way. One of his sons, Serafino, recounted being beaten for 30 days straight because he was starving and stole a spoonful of peanut butter. Meanwhile, Marcus dined on fast food, enough that by the time he was arrested later on, he weighed nearly 300 pounds and was so wide that they needed three sets of handcuffs. Now, I'm not one to pick apart a person's appearance. I'm not the skinniest girl out there, but hell, this guy deserves it anyway. One neighbor in Fresno described Marcus's hair as one big, long, greasy dreadlock. It was just caked in dirt and oil. I also have a photo posted on my Facebook page. He is a pretty scary looking dude and something in his eyes just looks deranged. Sophina, which was Marcus's niece and now wife, recalled Marcus beating their one-month-old infant, Jonathan, until his legs bled because he wouldn't stop crying. Once, when Sophina tried to leave, he ended up stabbing her in the chest. So they were all just too afraid to do anything, to, to stand up to him or to try to run away. When the children would reach working age, they were forced to go out and make money to give directly to Marcus. He allowed them to actually leave the house to work. He had them so controlled and manipulated that he knew and felt like he was safe enough to allow them to be out in public and not tell anybody about what was happening at home. Marcus would tell the children that money was the work of the devil, and so they gave whatever ever earnings they made directly to him. They were pretty much slaves that had to do whatever Marcus asked or they were severely punished. Now get this, Marcus was obsessed with the cult leader David Koresh. He likely took a lot of his cues directly from him. If you're not familiar with David Koresh, he was the cult leader at the compound in Waco. And like David Koresh, 
they both despised law enforcement. So much so that Marcus made his family commit to a suicide pact. If any government official ever tried to take the children away or to split the family up, the mothers were ordered to kill their children and then themselves. They literally held monthly family meetings to discuss the details of the plan. Between the physical abuse, the incest, the sexual assaults, and the religious brainwashing, things in the home were incredibly bad. But for most of the family, this way of life was all they ever knew. And so they thought it was normal and just accepted things the way that they were. However, two of his nieces and wives, Ruby Ortiz and Sofina Solorio, wanted out. They had tried to run away before, but they were caught. But ultimately, Marcus decided to agree to allow them to leave, but only under the condition that they would leave their two sons, Jonathan and Aviv, behind. They had no choice but to agree if they wanted to get out, so they did. They left the children behind and went on their way. When they were out in the real world talking to people, they really started to see how what was happening in the home wasn't right and just how sick and twisted Marcus was. The horrors of the cult haunted them. And in 2004, they decided to go back for their sons, who were now both seven years old. On March 12, 2004, Ruby and Sofina went to the home to demand their children back. Marcus, of course, refused, and he shouted curses at the two women, calling them Judas, Whore, and Lucifer. When it was obvious that Marcus wasn't going to give them their children back, they called the police. Police showed up, and unfortunately, they had no actual legal right to go inside the home, so they stood outside asking Marcus to come out, but there wasn't really much that they could do. Ruby and Sophina knew about the suicide pact that the family had made, so they were screaming at police to save their children. They had a really bad feeling about what was going to take place, but the police didn't really know just what kind of psychopath they were dealing with. Police continued to speak with Marcus, try to negotiate, and Marcus eventually agreed to let the kids go, but he said first he wanted to say goodbye. He went inside, he shut the door behind him, and the officers waited for an hour and a half before he came back out. During this time, shots rang out, although the police officers said they didn't hear them. And when Marcus came outside the next time, his clothes were drenched in blood. What the police found inside was so horrific that some of them went on administrative leave and into counseling. Heads up, the scene was incredibly disturbing and we're dealing with the murders of children, so if you need to skip ahead, I completely understand. Inside was a literal pile of bloody human bodies. The body of the young women and small children were intertwined with clothing and stacked together in a back bedroom. The bodies were so entangled that it took hours for police to confirm the number of dead. In total... Nine were dead, with the victims ranging from age 25 to just one years old. Two were Marcus's daughters. The other seven were children of his daughters and nieces, all of them under eight years of age. Each person had been shot in the eye. The ten coffins Marcus had bought lined the wall in one of the other rooms. He had prepared for this moment. That much was clear. 
The victims were identified as Sabrina April Weston, age 25, Elizabeth Bria Kina Wesson, age 17, Illabel Carrie Wesson, age 8, Aviv Dominic Wesson, age 7, Jonathan St. Charles Wesson, age 7, Sidonia Solorio Wesson, age 2, Marshy St. Christopher Wesson, age 2, Ethan St. Laurent Wesson, age 4, and Jiva St. Vladenspry Wesson, age 1. Marcus was arrested, and even though it was pretty evident what had taken place, he told police that he was innocent. Nonetheless, he was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 sex crimes, including the rape and molestation of his underage daughters. At his trial a year after the murders, you could hardly recognize him. He looked like a completely different man. His dreadlocks were cut short, and he was nearly half the weight he was when he was initially arrested. Apparently, jail wasn't too kind to him, and prison food wasn't that good. Still, many potential jurors were excused from the trial after claiming to be terrified to be in the same room with Marcus. I'm telling you, the dude is scary looking. He has what I would call dead eyes. You just look at them and it's like they're just dead. The eyes of an absolute monster with no soul. Marcus offered as defense that his 25-year-old daughter, Sabrina, whose 18-month-old son, Marshy, who, you know, would have been both Marcus's own son and grandson, was killed as well. He said that she had herself committed the murders and then subsequently committed suicide. Remember, the pact was that the mothers would be ordered to kill their children and then commit suicide. The murder weapon, which was a 22 caliber handgun, was found with Sabrina's body, and Sabrina's DNA was found on the gun. However, her fingerprints were not. Her body was found on top of all of the others, and the murder weapon was found underneath her. However, we don't know if she fell on top of the bodies or if she was later placed there. Remember, Marcus was inside for an hour and a half before he came out covered in blood. Same with the gun that was underneath her. We don't know if it fell there or if it was placed underneath her. And as for her gunshot wound, it was inconclusive. While consistent with a self-inflicted wound, a shot at close range couldn't be ruled out either. Ruby and Sophina survived the whole ordeal and were able to provide testimony showing that Marcus had complete control over the family and that he had commanded them to die by murder-suicide if the police ever showed up at the door. They talked about the deplorable living conditions they had to endure and the physical, sexual, and mental abuse that they were subjected to. The murders of their family was just the final blow. Prosecutors said that Marcus was the trigger man, but they also argued that even if Sabrina did the shooting, her father should still be found guilty if he encouraged her to kill. The jurors accepted the prosecution's second theory. They found Marcus Wesson guilty, even though they decided the government didn't prove if he actually pulled the trigger. Marcus Wesson was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder on June 17, 2005. He was also found guilty on 14 counts of forcible sexual assault and the sexual molestation of seven of his own underage daughters and nieces. 
He was sentenced to the death penalty on June 27, 2005, and was sent to San Quentin Prison, the nation's largest death row. And it's actually the same prison that Scott Peterson is at. So he's in good company. In March of 2019, the governor signed a moratorium on the death penalty, sparing Marcus Wesson's life. Thankfully, however, he will never be eligible for parole, so he will die in prison. You might be surprised to know that he has support from some of his family members, including his eldest son, Dorian Wesson, who said, It just doesn't seem like him to do it. I can't give you an intelligent answer. I just don't think he's entirely responsible. He added that if he thought his father was capable of killing children, he would have stopped it. He talked about the family and said his sisters had artificial inseminations. He said his father was related to five of the dead children, but the other two were from another family. Okay, it sounds like a little bit of uh, denial there. To me, I think it just speaks to the level of control he had and the manipulation tactics that he used on his children. Carrie Wesson, the mother of Marcus, also spoke out. She said, The Marcus Wesson on TV, I don't recognize. That's not my son. This is a Christian family. This is not a cult. She described Marcus as a bright, intelligent child who loved animals. He and his family avoided dances, dressed modestly, and were vegetarians. Good Christians, I guess. The good news is that Marcus will be behind bars until he dies, and it appears that the surviving children have found ways to live through the pain, though I'm sure it can never be forgotten. They have careers, they have their own children, marriages, and are thriving outside of the nightmare home. That's it for me tonight. I want to once again thank tonight's sponsor. Listen to The Damned Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. As for me, if you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, all one word. Head over on whatever app you're listening to me on and leave me a review if you don't mind. I super appreciate your support. All right, until next time, don't be a Dahmer. Bye.